With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Kincaid's the leader of the soccer team. No, he, there is no bigger oh soccer fan than the great Kevin Kincaid. We got to get him on the show. He should work for the MLS. He really he should. Really he should. should run the MLS. I agree. Time's yours. That's right, it's me, the leader of the soccer crew, Kevin Kincaid on the Always Soccer in Philadelphia program. Thank you to Tony Bruno, Harry Mays, and Ryan Rothstein for the roaring round of applause and the warm welcome, the introduction to the program. It's a good show for you today. We're talking about a Philadelphia Union win. There are now four games unbeaten, five games unbeaten, actually, if you want to go back to March. And I can think of no person I would rather talk to about the game right now, the New England Revolution game. Then a longtime contributor to the program, it's Mr. Matt DeGeorge from the Delco Times. Matt, how you doing? I'm good. I'm, I'm wearing my, my Always Soccer in Philadelphia Icarus kit. I'm watching Atalanta play Parma and hopefully hit four goals past them and become the first uh, Serie A team in 70-some years to score 100 goals. Hey, life oh. is good. Life is good. You know, the union are winning. You've got the jersey on. How does the jersey fit? Is the, the quality good and the, and the fit is okay? Oh, I love it. I, as somebody, uh, as soon as I got it, as someone, I, I texted you, as somebody who has bought a lot of cheap jerseys through the years uh, from various, uh, shall we say, uh, unlicensed stands when I've been on trips to Italy and stuff like that, this is very much not this, this at all. Like, this is very, this is quality, it's comfortable. I don't have the fear that it's going to fall apart when I wash it. It's a really nice jersey. And I don't wear a lot of jerseys anymore at this point in my life, but I really like this one. Well, there you go. That's what I like to hear. Robbie makes great stuff at Icarus. I was very happy with how it came out and how that whole thing turned out. So thank you for your support. Thank you for coming on the program again. Uh, and as you know, we like to push past the, the silliness, and we like to get down to what really matters, the serious talk about soccer. Um, because this is a serious, uh, a serious tournament for the Philadelphia Union, who have made it to the round of eight. And uh, I'm going to give you my take on the New England game, and then you give me your take. Uh, you know, I think some people were kind of like, well, one nothing, whatever. You know, maybe they're looking for more goals. Maybe they were kind of bored. Honestly, I kind of loved that game because I thought the Union defended really well collectively as a group. I think they were swarming the ball a little bit better. They were diving in front of shots, blocking shots. Uh, getting up on guys' backs and not letting them turn. To me, it seemed like a Jim Curtin game, like a game that he would be proud of, you know, a one nothing win for a, a center-back-turned head coach. Um, that was my takeaway, that they would be happy with a one nothing. Uh, what was your takeaway? I think it was an elevated cup tie. and it, uh, I, This was referenced on the broadcast, but these knockout round games are sort of U.S. Open Cup-like right now because they don't count in the regular season standings because they're – you know, one-off knockout games. And, and I think sometimes that's what those games look like. They're going to be cagey. They're going to be a little bit of feeling out, especially after, you know, you had the intensity of the group stage and trying to trying to qualify. Um, and then there's a little bit of, not a letdown, but a little bit of an exhale. 
and then you realize you're just playing the game ahead of you instead of playing for three games or playing for points and standings and stuff like that. So from that perspective, yeah, it was pretty good. You know, the Union have the Union against New England were what they've been in this tournament, which is pretty good, but maybe not the best yet. And they're still getting results, so it's kind of a little hard to complain too much and be excessively critical about the way that they're playing. I think it's a testament to the fact that they look so dangerous at moments that you expect more from them now and that there is that next level to get to. Yeah, we've come quite a long way from the early days of you and me and Dave on the podcast where expectations were very low, you know, we didn't really, you know, we didn't really expect much of anything at all, right? And now, uh, you know, people want more and it's good that they want more. But I think personally for me, I kind of had to come to a, a, a an understanding that uh, this is a knockout tournament that they're in now. So, uh, yeah, you know, I think they're going to be equipped to for these knockout kind of games, these open cup style games. And maybe if you were disappointed by maybe in the third game, you know, Jim didn't really use a lot of subs or we haven't really seen, uh, you know, Matt Real or Anthony Fontana or of Mate Orovets or Andrew Vooten or whatever. I mean, you, you play to win the game as Herm Edwards once said. And so, you know, he's identified as starters the formula seems to be to defend well and then rip off one moment or two moments of attacking brilliance and just uh, try to try to grind grind teams out and then survive in advance, yeah? Yeah, they, they still could be creating more chances. They still could be creating more dangerous chances and getting them on goal. Um, but I, I think they've been pretty good. I, I think you're starting to see the style crystallize a little bit, um, and it's interesting because if, if you – watch the Red Bulls and um, you know obviously they didn't have a very good tournament but they're so dogmatic about the way that they press and it's like it's press 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 and then you saw against the Cincinnati game they had maybe 60% possession and had absolutely no clue what to do with it and that's just the way that their style is and I think that the Union are starting to crystallize a style that's a little bit different that they're still going to press they still lost the possession battle in all, uh, however many games it is now, six games. But they're still creating dangerous chances, and it's just a matter of getting more of them on target. They're still able to have the ball some, able to be dangerous for some portions, but also press really well. So it's an interesting, you know, way that they're kind of growing. And you have to remember that, you know, with it's not making excuses, but this is a team that had success while transitioning from Styles last year. Then they have, what, two, three months of an off-season. They come back for eight weeks, then they're gone for four months. Like, it's difficult to start putting together those higher-order functions of being a team, and I think you're starting to see some of that get better and get more coherent as the tournament goes on. I think it's interesting because uh, maybe it was like two, three years ago, three or four years ago, um, when you and I were both on the beat together, uh, Jim always liked to use this line where he would say, you know, we're not a good enough team where we can have like one or two guys be off their game and still win or, or still play well. And it seems like that's changing to me because I don't, maybe you agree, maybe you disagree, but I don't, I don't see like one guy necessarily, maybe Andre Blake has played well throughout the tournament, but I think that every other guy on the team, they've looked maybe really good in one game, maybe not so good in the other game or just average in another game. Um, and yet they're finding ways to win, you know, like 
Uh, Brendan Aronson maybe wasn't that great in this past game, but he was excellent in the first game. And it seems like the union have finally kind of moved past that, like uh, that hump of like, look, all 11 guys need to be on or else we don't have a chance. Yeah. I think that, I think that, uh, that question is kind of reframed a little bit in that the union now are at a point where they're not going to have one guy take over the game. And, you know, one guy's not going to be, you know, you look at LAFC. LAFC can be absolutely terrible, and Diego Rossi can just have a phenomenal game, or Tuesta right. can have a phenomenal game, and they're going to win, and it doesn't matter if, if eight of their players have bad games. And I think with the union, they are now, you know, when you look at that question of everybody having to play well, I think their default level is higher than it used to be, so that helps. You know, their default talent level is higher relative to the rest of the MLS. And, uh, you know, when you look at them getting, that's why they're getting results without necessarily playing all that well, is that they're just, they have that higher baseline and there's no one guy that's, that's like lifting or carrying the team, but they're still getting those, they're still grinding out those results. And they've been the workmanlike performances. And it's been important, I think, that, you know, the defense has been as good as it is because that's a way to be quietly really good. Um, and I think those. I think the defense has been excellent this tournament. Kai Wagner's been really, really good. Um, he's probably been. Uh, I'd argue this. You know, it's been Andre Blake, Aronson, and then Kai Wagner's probably been the next best player. Him and him and Mark McKenzie have been really, really good. And that's that's something they weren't doing last year. You know, the only the the four clean sheets last year. That was the thing that was kind of holding them back. And it, I find it interesting because. So many of the teams in this tournament, like you look at Cincinnati, that was terrible last year defensively, but all of a sudden they start not giving up three goals a game and they advance. Um, You know, Orlando was two years ago the worst defensive team in history before Cincinnati got there. And look at what Oscar Pereja has done with the structure there. Like it's such an easy way to get better is not to give up goals, and that's what the union are doing. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because, you know, it's like with the common knowledge would say that if something is constantly a thorn in your side or it's an obstacle that you have to overcome or something that you just can't deal with, then would just be to instead of, uh, you know, trying to jam the square peg in the round hole, you just go in a different direction entirely. And so credit to Jim and credit to Ernst for saying, look, if we're not going to go the superstar route, we're not going to pay $15 million for Barco. Um, we're just going to play a team pressing game instead. Yeah, because we don't need Bedoya to be on his game every night. We don't need Jamiro to be on his game every night. Brendan doesn't have to either. You know, Cashper can have a have a have an off game, but you know, collectively the eight or nine other guys who are on that's going to carry us through a a one nothing win. And does doesn't it feel like we've come so far from the days of like, you know, ask? I think we did. How many podcasts did you and me and Dave do where we were talking about? Well, who's the number ten going to be? How are they going to find a number ten? And is it Dochkal? Is it Barnetta? Is it Ilcino? Is it Maidana? Like, doesn't it seem to suggest to you they just kind of like matured as an organization and saying, well, we know, we, we, we know what we are and we know what we aren't and we're going to build our entire strategy about what we are. Yeah. And it's an interest. Again, I, I use the Red Bulls as the, the, the counterpoint because they're kind of the playbook a little bit. And obviously Ernst has that influence with Salzburg, but you know, you look at the way the Red Bulls have done it and they have, they've gone to the extreme of just absolute no name guys. Like, all due respect to Tom Marlowe and Brian White uh, and, you know, all those midfielders with really long names. But I, I couldn't tell, uh, you know, Omir Fernandez from Mark Shakowski from 
you know, whoever else. Mm -hmm. Mike Rella, or not Mike Rella, uh, uh, Daniel Warrior is the only one that you really recognize there. And, and the calculus that Red Bulls are doing is saying, we can plug literally anybody in as long as they're willing to run, and we will create such easy goal opportunities that whoever it is will be able to finish it. And the Union aren't doing that. They still have guys with class on the ball who can't create, but they're also doing it in a way that, like, they don't need to have a Boris Dochkel type who's going to break down a, a bunkered in defense. And they've done okay against teams that sit back on them, maybe not as well as they could. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's coming along. And I, I think Jim Curtin said the other day it's going to take, you know, nine or ten games to really, to really gel. And I think that nine or ten games doesn't include the first two in March. Um, so it, it's going to take time, and you have to kind of sit back and say, well, they're accomplishing a lot in the process of figuring that out. And, you know, say what you will, we don't know what the MLS schedule is going to look like at the end of this, um, except for the fact that I highly doubt it's going to be 34 games. But the points that they've gotten in the first five league games, that puts them kind of ahead of the ahead of the game a lot. Um. Let me well a question that we got more than anything I think this week like after I uh, solicited questions was a lot of people wanted to know about the subs and uh, you know the pattern seems to be pretty much the same here you know El Cino comes on uh, they did go to four two three one the other night Warren Carvalho is kind of a closer you know and the, the the flexibility of the five subs allows Jim to do that you know we got a little bit of Andrew Vooten the other night but. Uh, I don't. I don't know if I expected more, or if it's just sort of uh, you know, Jim. You and I were both on the Zoom call today, and Jim said, "Look, you know, somebody asked him. I, was it you who asked him about scoring in like the sixty-second minute or sixty-third minute or something like that?" And yes, they uh, do have they do have three goals in this tournament in, the, in exactly the sixty-third <laughs> minute, which is very weird, but whatever. So they've so like long story short, and this is kind of a question, kind of a statement, kind of like you can take it wherever you want to take it after I'm done talking, but. Um, it, it seems like the subs are just kind of like uh, f- formulaic, but in a in a good way because it's just kind of the natural flow of a game has kind of been similar throughout. You know, they kind of get a one goal lead, they defend a little bit, they bring El Cino on for a little bit of razzle dazzle, but there's really no reason why you need to go to Andrew Vooten or Matt Real or Anthony Fontana. I mean, like they have their eleven, and their eleven clearly is. Their first eleven is clearly better than players twelve through seventeen. So I think that we, we because I think I think we kind of have this weird thing in our head where it's like, well, you get five subs now, you should use more subs. But I mean, you, you know, one through eleven is still what it is. Like just because you have the extra subs doesn't mean you have to feel obligated to uh, to do anything if you're playing well and if you're satisfied with what you're seeing on the field. Yeah, it's it's difficult to criticize when you're on a five game unbeaten streak. Um, and there's been times where, I mean, I, the question the question that I think Jim Curtin asks himself at any given time is, you know, we're in the 70th minute. Is a fresh Anthony Fontana going to bring more to the team right now than Brendan Aronson with 70 minutes under his belt? And that's what the question has to be at every moment is, is this better? Um, and a lot of times it's just not. And that's, I guess kind of okay. Like I, I, I'd want to see Matt Real more too. Uh, are you going to take out Ray Gaddis when you have a lead late, and you know Ray Gaddis is yeah. going to stay at home? Are you going to take out Kai Wagner, who again has been outstanding? 
you're not. And and it applies kind of all over the pit. Like uh, the Santos, I, I think the Santos Delfino uh, understanding right now is good because it limits how much each of them has to run and fitness is the bugaboo for both of them in different ways. But like if you're 70 minutes into the game, is Andrew Wooten going to give you more than a slightly tired Casper Shabilko? And then the, the other part of it is, especially when you look at the midfield, it's, you know, Alejandro Bedoya is not coming off unless an injury forces him off. Right. Um, and he has the tactical flexibility to play multiple systems, multiple positions. Same for Jamiro. Um, so you start to kind of close down as to how many places there really are to, to sub. I mean, it would be great if at one point in the group stage you were up 3-1 on, say, New York. Not New York City FC, but, you know, you're up 3-1 on Orlando and you can bring in Fontana for 10 minutes or you can bring in DeVries. But it's all of, Jim is always about who is going to give them the best chance to win in any given position. And so much, it's the starters. And when they're playing well, it's kind of tough to argue with that. And they are playing well and they are getting results. So it's really tough to argue with that. I'm glad you mentioned Ray Gaddis earlier because I want to take a moment right now to introduce a new uh, rule to the podcast, uh, a new guideline uh, to the podcast, and we're going to call it the Raymond Gaddis rule. And uh, what we're going to do is that I, li- I like to think that we're fair and balanced um, on the Always Soccer in Philadelphia program. I think people would say that, that you and I are actually the most positive of report Philadelphia Union reporters, there's no snark. You never get any snark from Matt George and Kevin Kincaid. Um, but we do occasionally kind of get the gripe, like look, like leave Ray alone or whatever, right? So I'm going to institute a rule on the podcast. And we do. We already kind of follow this. I I, I hope we kind of follow it. But uh, the new rule, the Ray Gaddis rule, is that whenever I say something critical about a player, I have to pair that with something positive. So, uh, you know, an, an eye for an eye, a positive version of an eye for an eye. I don't really know what to call it. And look, like, I think I've come to uh, I've had my come to Jesus moment where it's just like, look, Ray is what he's going to be, you know. And I, I think like I, I got I think the thing that I had the biggest hurdle like overcoming is that like, look, he's not he's they don't ask him to do any more. You know, like they, they don't ask him to go forward. <laughs> they don't ask him to hit crosses in and it still results you've probably seen this too it still results in that weird kind of like right-sided tilt where Bedoya is high up the field and Gaddis is just sort of hanging back but uh I mean I mean at this point are we have we all just kind of accepted that 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 Ray is what he is and that it's never going to change so first I will point out in in the name of following the Ray Gaddis rule to start out I'm sorry the Raymond Gaddis rule to start out with thank you I would point out that you know, uh, the the goal against, was it Orlando? No, Inter. Uh, the, that play starts with Ray Gaddis threading a really nice ball down the line for Brendan Aronson to then square to whoever, whoever I mean, that was two weeks ago. Might yeah. as well be two years ago. Um, <laughs> Ray Gaddis did have a very important attacking contribution there. And I think as we look in retrospect sometimes, um, so this is, this is a little bit of a balance. It sometimes the fact that Ray Gaddis doesn't bring enough attacking-wise is more commentary on the system that requires it from Ray Gaddis rather than Ray Gaddis himself. Mm-hmm. So I think there were times in the past where you looked and said, well, you're getting nothing attacking-wise from your right back, 
And the reason for that was because the players in the midfield or the forwards weren't providing enough chance creation, so you had to look at your right back for that. Now, I think there are going to be levels where, you know, the union are maybe trying to unlock certain accomplishments or against certain opponents where they are going to need that from a right back. And, and you know, especially at times where, um, you know, I think maybe the best way to cope with the union is to actually give them the ball and sit back in two banks of four and let them try and break you down. And in those situations, you need more from a right back than you do when you're counterattacking. Um, but I think a lot of the you know deficiencies that we viewed Ray Gaddis as having, those were really more of a systemic thing in that the system was calling for it. Jim Curtin has said it in so many words all the time. You know, Ray Gaddis is what he is. And if he's defending really well, then he's doing his job. And that's kind of maybe all you need. I think the amount of ground that... Uh, that Alejandro Bedoya covers down that right, he kind of works as your your right wing back because he's going to recover back centrally well enough to to kind of cover that ground. So I, I think what Ray has done in this tournament has been really good. Uh, he got a, I think he made one mistake against Inter where he stepped into Miami. I keep calling them Inter like they're actually Inter. <laughs> against, against the Miami Flamingos. Yeah. Uh, stepping into midfield and he kind of got burnt by it because he didn't get the ball or didn't get the man. Uh, but other than that, he's been really solid. And for as many extremely fallible right backs as there are in MLS, and you can watch the way Seattle's defense got absolutely just uh, just eviscerated last night by LAFC, having a, a right back who first does no harm, that's not the worst thing in the world. Ray Gaddis is and especially and especially because Kai Wagner is what like I, I don't know that having a right footed Kai Wagner on this team, mm-hmm. while yes it provides more balance, I don't know that that necessarily that, that might leave you too vulnerable defensively, if that makes sense. Well, when we did the podcast with uh, when Rick McGovern was on over the winter, we came to this. We came to the ultimate like Ray Gaddis line is was that Ray Gaddis is never going to lose you a game, but he's never going to win you a game. You know, like he, and we said that he's Cesar Hernandez, you know, like steady player, you know, reliable, but you, you know, he is what he is. Right. So I think that's a good take, um, from you. I'm going to give you another take. And I had kind of like an embarrassing moment on the zoom call today, because before I asked a question, I climbed three flights of stairs in my house and I totally ran out of breath in the middle, middle of the question. I had to like pause and collect myself. Uh, maybe that's my fault for asking too long of a question. But I asked Jim um, if he sees similarities in Brendan's game and Tranquillo Barnetta's game. And um, he he seemed to agree. And my take is basically just that, like, look, I, I don't want, you know, Brendan is not, he, he's not ever going to be like that slicing and dicing, like Mauro Diaz, Diego Valeri, um, sort of South American, like Latino, you know, um, through ball player you know i mean he, he his game reminds me a bit of where keo was in 2015 where i think Tranquillo only finished with like four assists that season i think he had more goals and assists but he's kind of like a jim jim dropped a quote back then he, where he called him a boxer he called Tranquillo a boxer where it's like the more punches he takes the more volume he gets the more touches on the ball you know you know that good things are going to happen when you get the ball to his feet so brendan aronson i i see his career path it's weird for me to say this because Tranquillo was a winger for 10 years before he ever moved inside for like 10 to 12 years before he moved inside. But do you see similarities with this kind of like, okay, this is the type of uh, the type of, of 10 that they are? 
Yeah, I, I don't think Brendan Aronson's future is necessary. So, like you brought up, you brought up um, Mara Diaz in Dallas, and when I close my eyes and think about Diaz, I think about him standing in the center circle and hitting a, a blind forty-yard ball that just cuts out four defenders. Yeah, you know, I don't know that, and I don't say this in a bad way because it doesn't imply that he's unskilled, but I don't know that Brenton Aronson's career trajectory is going to be a lot of those, you know, highlight reel, how did he make that pass kind of moves. Like, I I don't know that he's going to, I mean, he's excellently talented, and he is a a very technical player, but I don't know that it's going to be that kind of, oh my God, look at what he just did kind of passes or or shots or, or things like that. I think he's gotten better at reading defenses and playing balls to the lines to runners. Um, but at the same time, I, I agree. I think he's going to be an industrious number 10. And there are enough systems worldwide where that works. Like, not everybody needs to have a, you know, a crazy. Uh, my references are so dated, and the most, you know, the, the one I could think of is Ronald Vino. But. <laughs> Maybe that's because I tweeted it Hulky earlier today. Yeah, Union Hulk um, will appreciate that. Yeah, but I mean, it doesn't necessarily, like, you don't have to necessarily be a guy who dances and beats three guys, but you could just be a solid pass connector and a, and a worker, and especially now as more teams are going to counter-pressing, a guy who works really hard defensively, that's important. That's an important skill, too. So I think that is a valid uh that's a valid point, and and I don't want to I don't want to kind of frame it negatively as like he is that because he doesn't have you know the sublime touches or he doesn't have you know he doesn't have what yeah. Diego Rossi can do or or whatever that is. But it's just a different way of playing it, and it's I think in some ways it's a little bit of a more blue collar American kind of way to, to play it. Well, he is a blue collar Philly guy. He's got his lunch. And, he's bringing his lunch pail to the pitch with him. <laughs> I mean, I think I think the place that he's going to end up in Europe is going to be someone that plays a four-two-two-two, and he's going to not necessarily be an, an in the hole number ten, but he's going to be a guy who is going to, you know, on the right or left, have a very a large area that he's going to patrol in a pressing situation, and then he's going to make the kind of quick moves to goal. And I think he's gotten so much better at that. As I watch Brendan Aronson in this tournament, I can't help but clock moments where he does something and you're like, he wouldn't have done that last year. You know, yeah. the quick turns, the the first step forward, just these little things in his mindset, the seeing a sliver of space and running towards it instead of last year, he might not have done that. He might have played square or backwards. Um, and, you know, maybe some of that is not Hacken Harris calling for the ball behind him. But he's just he's just mindset wise evolved and grown in that way, and you know I think he's still got a lot of he's got a lot of a lot of upside, and I think he you know for the average nineteen year old American midfielder he is towards the top of the scale in terms of how skilled he is technically on the ball. It just maybe isn't you know it just maybe doesn't uh, doesn't translate on a global scale. Are you familiar with that Curb Your Enthusiasm clip, like the the meme where Larry David is kind of like unsure? He like he wants to feel one way, but then he wants to feel another way, and he's like, uh, 
I'm I'm actually not, despite everything about my personality, I'm not a curb washer. Okay, well, I, I feel like... Um, next on my lockdown list. I would I would have pegged you as a Kirby enthusiasm watcher, but it uh, maybe in the future. Um, so my take on Brandon Aronson, it, you know, it's weird. I I, keep, I find myself like constantly being pulled in two different directions because like I've said consistently on this podcast, and like, look, the bar is so low for American players that all he has to do is score one goal, and we're like, oh, he's starting for the men's national team, you know. Um, and on the other hand, it's like, well, uh, he could very well go to Germany, and that would be great for him. He could that'd be great for the U.S. national team if he moved from the Union to Germany, but does it make sense for the Union? Like the price, they they still have to get something out of it because if you if you send Brandon Aronson to uh, Schalke or Frankfurt or Bremen or something like that right now, um, that would be amazing, and you would get this symbolic thing where it's like, look, we raised this kid on our own, we brought him through the academy, and we sold him to Schalke. But if they only give you three million dollars for it, and you got to give some of that to MLS, then really. Did you get anything out of it besides this symbolic moment or just proof that you can do what you wanted to do as an academy? Like, to me, it's still got to make sense for the union. But on the other hand of it, on the other side of it, I'm like, well, if Brendan was 19 and he was that good, he would be playing in Germany already. Yeah, to a degree. I mean, I think some of the guys that are playing uh, there are playing there for certain reasons, whether that's passport reasons or... They were just raised in a way that was like, well, you have to go to Europe. So I think some of it is a disposition. Um, and it's not always a strict, like, the best players always go to Europe kind of thing or, or always end up there at a young age. Like, you know, for, for what you, you know, you look at the Christian Pulisic uh, example, and he has ties to Germany, and that's part of the reason why, he's there, why he was there. Um I, I definitely agree on the price issue. Like, I, I don't think selling Brendan Aronson to—I was going to say Hoffenheim, but that, that connection has been kind of severed because uh, Dick Schroeder's brother was fired there. But yeah. I, I think, uh, you know, I think you need to get at least eight million dollars out of it because you do have to find a replacement and you do have to fix a very big hole in your side if if you're going to do that. So. Um, I don't know that the symbolic. I, I don't think Ernst Tanner is someone who is out for symbolic victories if it's not going to help him, and in this case, actively hurt him on the field. Yeah. Um, well, that's yeah. when. It, that's why it's good to have a prag, pragmatic and emotionless German running the team when it comes to these kind of things. Absolutely, and and I think you know we we do have to kind of be measured in what you think Brendan Aronson is going to be. He he's not going to be the type of player. And I don't mean to the degree that Messi is, but like he's not going to be that type of player. He's not going to be, you know, David Silva. He's not going to be that kind of playmaker. But there are enough different systems that somebody like that has a place somewhere in somebody's conception of what modern soccer is. Matt, great stuff as always, man. Uh, we're running on 30 minutes here, so I'm going to give you the final word. Uh, if there was anything else that jumped out at you from the press conference today or uh, maybe a prediction for Thursday night, what would you like to say to the to the people as you uh, as we wrap this up? I mean, the thing that I'm, that I'm interested in is right now, can you consider what the union have done a success in this tournament? I mean, they're one of the top eight teams in MLS. They get seven points out of a possible nine for the – regular season table, which is uh, 
you know, the, the second best case scenario. They've won a knockout stage game and kind of proven themselves to be above New England in the hierarchy for whenever those teams meet in a game that starts in the regular season stand, or that counts in, in the regular season standings. Um, I know that most fans wouldn't say that they're playing with house money because we don't know what comes after this. And certainly, uh, I think if they if they beat Sporting KC and end up in the semifinals, then this time in the bubble is an unqualified success. I think as it is right now, it's pretty close to a success. But uh, you know, Jim Curtin and I certainly fans want more and to take it to that next level. I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that they can win this tournament. I'm, I'm not. I'm not impressed. I'm not overly impressed with any of these other teams. I know Columbus has been playing well. Um, I know Orlando has been playing well and gets a little bit of uh, funny scheduling by having two extra days rest over its next uh, uh, over its next opponent. Um, LASC's given up now whatever it is six, eight, nine goals in its last five or yeah. eleven goals in its last five games. I don't think they're unbeatable, and they panicked a little bit last night after Will Bruin scores that goal against uh, late on. So they can win this tournament, which is weird, very weird to say. Philadelphia Union in the round of A, we shall see what happens. Uh, this is not your grandmother's Philadelphia Union in 2020. Matt, thanks for your time as always, man. You were a friend of the program, and uh, if once, well, if we ever get out of this COVID thing, maybe we'll actually do another uh, podcast in person one of these days. Oh, in person. Remember that? Yeah, seeing people in person. I forgot what the feeling was like. I'm going to have, well, I'm gonna, I actually, when I interact with people, I have them hold a box around their head so that it reminds me of Zoom. That way I can adjust. <laughs> That's right. We'll have to transition back to the real world once we get out of it. Matt, thanks for your time, man. I appreciate it as always, brother. Thanks for having me. Well, if you've listened to the last few podcasts, we've spent some time talking about legal sports betting. Allow me a minute to tell you about The Book Bosses, a sports handicapping agency with more than 25 years of experience. I started using their service this week, and I'm 4-0 already, a 100% record. I've won on money lines, spreads, overs, and unders. They offer profit guarantees on all of their plans, so if you do not profit, over the course of your package, you'll receive their services for free until you do profit. They can make you money no matter what your bankroll is. Everything is honest, legitimate, and completely transparent. Plays are delivered directly through your phone for an easy and convenient wagering process. No clunky communication and no dialing a 1-800 number to listen to a recorded voice message from a shady guy named Mikey or Sal. This is 21st century handicapping. It's all very smooth. Trust me on that. Check out their packages by visiting online. Go to thebookbosses.com or check them out on Instagram at thebookbosses. It's spelled exactly as it sounds. T-H-E, the book, B-O-O-K, bosses, B-O-S-S-E-S, thebookbosses.com. Did you see the memo about this? All right, let's see what kind of questions and comments and concerns you guys have for me. This is from Buzzkill Ed checking in. He says, what is your wife's favorite Rush song? My wife likes subdivisions. Yeah, as do my neighbors. Uh, yeah, I'm on a Rush kick, big Rush kick, which is always a good thing. You know, that's a, you, you know, band, listening to music is cyclical. Like you listen to one band for like a month at a time, and then you stop for like a year, and then they come back around. And I'm, I'm in a good cycle right now. I got Rush. 
uh, up there nonstop. I think I've played Red Barchetta about 40 times on the drums. Red Barchetta on the drums <laughs> about 40 times the last couple of days. Uh, my wife's favorite Rush song is probably Tom Sawyer because she worked at WISP, and I think they played Tom Sawyer 400 times a week on WISP. It was like, it was like the radio stations here thought that like that was the only song that Rush ever recorded, you know? Funny how that works out. Philadelphia Radio always has some like random song that's only played on radio stations here. Like I never heard Jane's Addiction on any other radio station in any other city I visited, but I heard Ben Caught Stealing about four bazillion times on WMMR. Jared Young says, does Andre Blake still have interest in Europe? Are his feet still holding him back? This tournament performance might get those rumors swirling again. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, I would, I would say the ship has sailed, but then when I think about it, I mean, he's not even 30 years old yet. So it's hard to, um, you know, it's hard to say for a goalkeeper that the ship has sailed, but, uh, yeah, I mean, he's going to have to be better in possession if he's going to play for a European team that likes to knock the ball around in the back and, uh, you know, I'm not saying it's like Manchester city or anything like that, but, uh, he's going to have to be able to do more than just boot the ball up the field, you know, more than just clear back passes and stuff like that. Uh, obviously he's a great shot stopper and um, continues to do that. He's going to have eyeballs on him, and these, that's what's going to get him to the point where teams are looking at him and then evaluating whether he can make that next step. But I don't think there would be much of a transfer fee. I think if they were going to do it early, if they were going to do it four or five years ago, they would have done the, the transfer to Belgium. But I think that's kind of fallen by the wayside. Um. Ezra says, are you the Freddy Adu of Rocket League? No, I'm actually pretty good at Rocket League. Ezra was playing, uh, we were playing with Ezra a couple weeks ago, last week, a week before, something like that. I don't get on Rocket League very often, maybe like once every two weeks or something like that. Just with the baby, it's hard. I'm sure all you parents out there know. You get your like one hour, two hours a week to uh, to like shut shut your brain off and play video games. And then, you know, one of those hours is spent like update, downloading a patch or something like that. Go figure. I think I had a hat trick in that game we were playing Ezra. So I don't appreciate the Freddie Adu reference. And he also says, how's Mark McKenzie really this good? Yeah. Mark's been playing really well. I don't really know what else to say about him. He's just calm. He makes, he makes difficult things look really easy. Um, and he never seems to really like panic. He never really seems to be out of his element. Just always sort of seems to be in a, in a groove and, um, in in control in control of things, a good pass or two. I, I would have liked to see a little bit more. I, th- I think there was. I don't know if it was the last game of the game before where where the center backs were just chunking the ball up the field without trying to keep without trying to step up into space, carry the ball into space, then maybe try a line splitter or two, and you got numbers back if you do. I think they were a little rushed in in uh, booting some of those balls up the field, but. Uh, Max says, "How good is, uh, or as good as Casper is doing with other things? Uh, would we be better served if he focused more on being a poacher?" No, you know, I think he should be dropping in a little bit more. I think he's good with his feet. He's got good feet for a big man. You see that with those cutbacks that he does. Um, you know, he's good at holding on to the ball, possessing the ball, and allowing people to get forward. You know, he's when when he was doing that last year and the year prior, or or yeah, last year. Well, last year mostly. You know, he could sink into a pocket, get on the ball, turn, uh, you know, allow people to get forward, move the lines up. Um, doesn't feel like he's getting a ton of touches, does it? I would like to see him just be a little bit more involved. Uh, I think he's been active. I don't know how involved he's been. Um, you know, cause he, you can, you can enter the final third through his feet as well. You know, he's not a pure target guy. He's not CJ. Right. But, um, 
I think his feet are underrated. Uh, David Bennett says, if ESPN Plus's TV show Detail starts doing soccer, uh, who should host the MLS episodes and who for the Europe episodes? Uh, well, I should do the MLS episodes. I'll do the MLS episodes. And who for the European episodes? Um, we'll get Phil and Russ. Phil and Russ can do that. And then they can take it to uh, Crossing Broad FC, which I don't think they've recorded in a while, have they? Got to get them to do another one of those. Um, Eric says, did I see a change to a four two three one when Craval came in? Yes. Yeah, Elsino was on the right. Uh, did Brendan go over to the left? I think Jamiro pushed up to the 10, I want to say. Seemed effective enough to close out the game. Yeah, it did, and that's kind of going to be the formula. Because I don't know how they play Elsino either in any other way, right? I mean, play him as a forward, but it's not really effective. You know, he's a right-sided guy. Um... Richard Saunders says, how did the Union have at one point both Bedoya and Adu and not win a cup? Uh, yeah, it's a good question. Um, well, you know, in the 2014 U.S. Open Cup, they just didn't have enough depth. And they were good against Kansas City in 2015, and they just, uh, you know, f- lost out on penalties. Maurice missed that penalty. I thought they were pretty good in that game otherwise, though. And uh, the 2018 U.S. Open Cup, uh, yeah, um, yeah. That's a forgettable one. So, uh, Mike says realistic transfer fees for Aronson and McKenzie. Nothing less than five million. Nothing less than five million. Why? Why you can't take that? You because then you're just setting a precedent that says, well, we think our best guys that come through our academy aren't worth that much money. I mean, you got it. Again, it's got to make sense for the union. Sending Brendan to Germany is good for Brendan. It's good for the U.S. national team. It's not that great for the union. Like, who cares? Okay, so we all say, wow, they transferred a guy, they sold a guy to Europe, but. You know, you're trying to make money off of it. That's the point. You're not just like doing it out of the good of your goodness of your own heart. Like you got to get something back for it. Uh, no, I wouldn't take any less than five million dollars for those guys. Straight up. Uh, Ryan says this is kind of a useless alternate history, but I've thought about it anyway. Where do you think this team uh, is if they had hired Renee Muhlenstein over Jim back in 2014-15? Um, I think they're actually where they are. Well, they're actually kind of where they are right now with Jim being the head coach because I don't think Renee would have stuck around, you know, this many years. You know, the way the story goes and what Nick told me was that he was interested in having Renee be the guy and Jim kind of be the number two and have Jim learn a little bit more instead of just throwing Jim right into the job and having him learn on the job. And obviously 2014, 15 were a little rough, you know, and even parts of 2016 as well before they – became the team that they are today. But, um, I mean, they probably would have been okay. Maybe they would have ripped off a couple more wins. But, um, you know, I don't think Renee was, you know, from what I understand, like half of the people in charge wanted Renee and half of the people wanted Jim, and they went with Jim because he was local. They trusted he could grow into something, and they were making the switch at that point to kind of like, you know, build build from within and uh, bring people through the system and the process and trust a head coach to kind of learn and grow. So, Long story short, I think that Jim would have eventually been handed the reins when Renee took off. Um, so maybe it worked out better that he just got the job when he did right away. So, uh, la, 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 la. A. Bev says, how does Jim keep Ollie fresh with two games per week? I don't know, man. I played Sunday, last Sunday in Philly when it was like 90 million degrees and I was dying. So I don't know how these guys are doing. I was sore for like a week. You know, of course, I'm not a professional athlete. I don't get the ice bath. I don't, you know, I have other stuff to do. I, they don't, I don't get to sit around in a hotel room. We don't get to sit around in a hotel room and do nothing after we 
play. We have wives and kids and families and stuff like that. But these guys are just pros, you know. They're in good shape. They take care of their bodies. They eat right. Yeah, I guess that's all you can say, you know. Uh, Union Hulk says, Kevin Dini, are you worried about the lack of goals? Where are they coming from in 2020? And are you thrilled that finally Mario Balotelli is available to the Union? Are you doing uh, our game, the uh, words end in A game? Can you say Mario? Mario? Well, it doesn't end in an A, Hulk. It ends in an O, Mario. It doesn't work that way. Uh, Hulk misses Joy on Broad. Rush Joy saying Foffer <laughs> in Tommy, uh, Tommy Smith's voice. Foffer. Foffer Pico. Um, yeah, we got to do words and end the letter A the next time Russ is on. I know everybody loves that segment. Uh, Richard Saunders has another question. What's an Oravets and how does someone get doghoused uh, by Jim every year? Can you name them all? 2020 Oravets, 2019 Marco Fabian, 2018 Derek Jones, 2017 Richie Marquez, Roland Alberg, uh, Giliano Wijnaldum, 2016 Adu. Well, he wasn't in the doghouse. 2015, Aristigieta. Yeah, I mean, it always seems like there's one dude who's just like comes in and there's some hype, and then it's like we, you never hear from him again. So I don't know. Maybe they just I, maybe it was just a project player for Ernst. Uh, uh, who knows? I mean, I, I just think the thing is, is like if you think the guy is good enough to be signed, then he's probably good enough to play, you know? You know, or else you go send him to Union too and let him play down there. So he's kind of in like purgatory right now, you know? Um. Jim O'Leary says, has Sega or Saga ever appeared on words ending in the letter A? No, but we'll make sure they make it into the to the next segment. Um, Chris says, does Jim's apparent inability to spell starters say more about his coaching philosophy or squad depth? Uh, I mean, it's a little bit of both. I don't, I don't even know if it's an apparent inability. I just think, like I was saying to Matt, I think each of these games has kind of followed the same pattern where the union – kind of have that one goal lead they feel like they're playing okay they can sit on the one goal lead they can protect it they can bring him warren to to shield the back line i don't think he feels the need to go to anthony fontana or matt real or or anybody else i mean you know if they were blowing orlando out or you know they had the that that game didn't matter like it didn't matter for the regular season standings or points or anything like that then maybe you will give those guys some time but the stakes are higher i mean there's not a lot if you're trying to win the damn thing you know, you're not saying, well, let's throw some guys in here just to get some minutes. Like, you'll find them some minutes elsewhere because these games count for something, you know. So, Sam says, who gets sold first, Mackenzie Aronson or other? Um, I think Mackenzie gets sold first. Uh, his comment is, thanks for keeping up with the pod through 2020. You're welcome. And his concern is that Curtin has another strong year and gets an offer to coach overseas. I don't think he'll coach overseas. I think he, he would be in the U.S. setup because Ernie Stewart's there right now. I think they like uh, the American coaches. And I think if Jim ever left the union, I think he would end up with the U S national team in some, in some way, shape or form, either, either as an assistant or like with the U 18s or the U 19s or U 20, whatever the hell the, the number is, the U 21s or something like that. Uh, John says thoughts on losing a key coach before a key player this next season. I'm thinking of Noonan in particular, hearing more and more praise. He probably has the chops. Yeah. I mean, look, that's, that's what happens when you're a winning program, when you're a better program, you know, Brett Brown is hemorrhaged, Lloyd Pierce and, uh, you know, Monty Williams went back to, to coach at Phoenix. So yeah, I think that's, that's, that's a concern for sure. Uh, but there's been some turn, there's been turnover on Jim's staff and he's done fine. Mike Sorber and those guys. So 
No problem. I think they they're always thinking a step ahead with that. Uh, Trey says, well, I hope Aronson becomes the number 10 we all dream of. I think he's currently best as a wide playmaker. He seems most com- comfortable running in behind through the channels. Could being stationed centrally be the, be the reason for low offensive numbers. Yeah. Look, I mean, it's the hardest position to play, I think, for attacking players. You know, certainly he's going to have more space to operate. He's going to get more raw touches on the ball if he starts near the touchline. But uh, we've, we've, we've seen enough flashes of brilliance from Brendan to think that he can play as a 10, play at the tip of the diamond. Um I wouldn't mind seeing him play wide, of course, but again, they're not. Uh, you know, they don't start in four-two-three-one. They they don't start without wingers. So, I mean, <clears throat> the only other place to play him is like as a forward, like a second striker, uh, instead of like Sergio Santos, where you play him as one of the eights, and you're not moving Jamiro or or Bedoya out there. The only thing you could really do if you wanted to try switching it up just a little bit is to play Jamiro at the ten and uh, Brendan as an eight. But I don't think that's really too much of a difference, honestly. So, um. Score predictions from Jack. I say 1-1, and then somebody wins and somebody loses in penalties. I'm not sure who. Uh, DJ says, what position would you use a DP slot on? Number 10 if they sell Aronson? Yeah, for sure. Um, striker, maybe if Vooten doesn't work out and he goes somewhere else, you know, because then you free up some money there. Um, I'd still look at, like, a TAM-level right back if you could. Uh, Yaz says if McKenzie and Aronson go in the offseason, what will the team look like and who benefits the most, Fontana at the 10 or 8? Yeah, I mean, look, uh, if Brendan goes, you can plug Anthony Fontana in there for sure. You know, they like Brendan's brother, who's younger than him, you know. Uh, will the union ever play on the left side of the field? No, I don't think they will. <laughs> I just They're just a right-sided, like, weird tilt team with, with the way Gaddis and Bedoya play, you know. Uh, Jack Fritzadelphia's legendary says, I know Dre has been really good so far, but his ability on the ball is awful. He's never comfortable with a pass back to him. And he just bombs it downfield. I agree. He always does that. Yeah. Uh, he also shanks a lot of those kicks out of bounds. Does it bother you as much as me? Or are you just happy he's found his form and goal? Yeah. Look, I mean, it, it is what it is for him. I mean, it's kind of like, <clears throat> you know, with Ray, like, you know, that, you, you know, you're not, you're not going to, you're not going to lose a game with Andre booting the ball up the field and just clearing it like you're better safe than sorry right you know because you don't want him to like mess up on the ball and you know create an error or whatever he doesn't have a lot of those in his career really if any that i remember um but yeah i mean especially on his left foot too he just looks kind of awkward and like kind of janky when he's clearing these balls sometimes kind of like warren warren just seems to have like jerky kind of movements on the ball that don't look smooth like head up head down take a look up you know take a touch like maybe an extra touch i mean it just doesn't feel like he glides necessarily like other midfielders do and i see that with dre a little bit too where he, he and it's not happy feet but it's a little shuffly and like it just doesn't feel like the motions are smooth you know what i mean um what else do we got oh that's it i oh, know we got oh craig says why all the dumb short corners yeah i was complaining about that the other night the short corners bother me and, and i guess i should specify this too I, I don't i don't necessarily even hate short corners i hate when the ball when you're on when you have a corner and the ball doesn't go into the box you know, um, if you want to play a short corner and the guy in your teammates stand then eight yards away from you, you dump it to him and he hits he hits it in from a different angle to create an in swing or an out swinger, that's fine. I think like my beef <laughs> like as a center back as a defensive midfielder, like you jog your ass sixty yards up the field and then these um wingers and these strikers are fucking around on the ball and it never gets into the box. And then you have turnover opportunities, transition opportunities, but then I gotta haul haul ass back the other way. The statistics for balls for scoring off corner kicks are low. Like it only happens like every six or seven games or something like that. But I think my specific gripe is that 
you're not getting, you're not creating these chances. You're not even getting the ball into the box in the first place. So I need somebody who's good with stats or has the advanced analytics to tell me how many short corners end up uh, in service into the box versus not reaching the box in the first place. Does that make sense? Uh, John says, this is the last one. What do you think that you can do to get the offense going? Um, I mean, I think when they start, when they are in full season fitness, when they're not playing in 90 degrees in Orlando, the energy level is going to be there. They're going to swarm a little bit more like they were doing in this game, and they're going to create turnovers, and they're going to score off transition opportunities. You know, it's it's funny because the goal that they scored against New England, they were countering off a counter. You know, New England was moving up the field, turning the ball over. They were out of position trying to recover, and that gave Jameer kind of this, this space uh, in the pocket there and kind of like the uh, green zone, zone 14 area where they weren't able to operate beforehand and allowed them to play the through uh, the uh, the little chipped ball over the top. So that's what they want to be. They're going to do a lot of their, their stuff in transition, you know, counter-pressing, countering off counters, you know, moving quickly down the field. Um, and if you want to call that a counterattack, you could say they scored on two counterattacks now in the tournament. So I think naturally they'll go, they'll turn defense into offense as they get more fit and as they're not playing in 90 bazillion degree temperatures. So, um, oh, one last question I missed here from Colin. Do you think Wagner's here long term? Do you think he'll go back to Germany soon? No, I think he'll go back to Germany soon. Maybe one more year, maybe this year, or maybe one more year next year, play two or three years here in Philly and then probably head back. So that's just my take. All right, that's it, everybody. Episode number 100, whatever the hell this was. We'll try to do another one. Uh, I'm going to have a former union player, I think, do the next podcast, uh, hopefully this weekend after the Kansas City game, but we'll see.